Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking legislation on free speech, the government's new agenda, and admissions reform. It's all coming up. Anyone within or even just, you know, anywhere near the edges of the sector knows that this is not an issue which is felt um, acceptable. We have to talk about it, which which feels like it's far more regularly than we um, ever want to. Thank you to, uh, thanks to government interventions. And, and this is now um, going to, frankly, just cause us all a huge amount more work and stress and, you know, potential um, uh, difficulties. And, and as you said, Mark, you know, potentially stoke up supply. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us give a platform to policy this week are three brilliant guests as usual. In Tooting, we have Chris Shelley, Director of Student and Academic Services at the University of Greenwich. Chris, welcome. Your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my, my highlight of the week was getting into the garden and building a shed. I, I was a proper cliche last weekend. I was in there in the garden building a shed, trying desperately not to think about what might be coming out of the Queen's speech. <laughs> uh, and in Wrexham, we have Claire Taylor, Deputy Vice Chancellor of Wrexham Glyndor University. Claire, your highlight of the week, please. So uh, my highlight of the week has um, has already happened and it's yet to come. And you're probably thinking, well, she's talking in riddles this morning. But um, yesterday, our Students' Union recorded their annual award ceremony on campus. And um, I was privileged to be part of that, announcing some of the winners. And tonight, the recording's going to be streamed for us all to watch. And, you know, it's been a really tough year for our Students' Unions. Um, but it's great to have the opportunity to celebrate, you know, some of the uh, incredible um, achievements uh, along the way. Uh, and in Watford, we have Jim Dickinson, Wonky's Associate Editor Jim, your highlight of the week. Merry Christmas, Mark. It is Eurovision season, and uh, whilst I suspect that the average listener may just be watching the final, the rehearsals started last week in Rotterdam, uh, which I've been kind of trying to catch up on all week. And the good news is it looks like Malta are going to win, so it's Valletta, May 2022. See you there. You heard it here first. Right. The government has announced a new bill all about free speech in universities. Uh, Lots to say about this. Jim, start us off. Oh, well, yes, here we go then. Strike up the music. The band has begun. Uh, Here we go again. So, free speech. Um, Moderately surprisingly, um, one of the first bills emerging from the Queen's speech to actually be published um, and get its uh, second reading and start its kind of process through Parliament is the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill. Um, and what this does is it um, kind of, you know, puts into uh, onto the statute books all of the things that emerged in the Department for Education Free Speech command paper that we saw and talked about on the podcast and wrote about and so on in February. So, uh, long story short, um, it creates the Director of Academic Freedom and Freedom of Speech post on the OFS board, which has kind of similar portfolio powers to uh, the Director of Fair Access. Um, that it uh, creates this new beefed up duty to not only secure but promote freedom of speech. Uh, on campus and academic freedom. It slightly finesses the definition of academic freedom in a moderately controversial 
way uh, by saying that academics should have academic freedom over matters concerning their own discipline. So you can have hours of fun with that, potentially. Um, and it brings into the regulation by the Office for Students, student unions. So, for, you know, there was a big question about how they were going to do this, but there's going to be a little register of student unions. Uh, student unions will be able to be fined by this new uh, director via, via OFS for breaches of the duty uh, and so on. And then finally, it creates this legal tort, this ability for people who feel they've been wronged as a result of an institutional student union's failure to kind of uphold the duty uh, to kind of t take civil action. Um, oh, and one other thing, a, a brand new complaints regime and a brand new complaints body. So we obviously already have in England and Wales the Office of the Independent Adjudicator. What this does is give the new Director of Academic Freedom and Freedom of Speech similar powers to OIA, but over free speech and academic freedom issues. And I guess what I'd say as a kind of opening gambit is you only have to think about that for about 26 seconds before you can imagine deep, visceral chaos. It certainly looks like we're going to see all sorts of trouble and chaos ahead. And I go back and forth about this. We talk about this a lot in the podcast. On the one hand, it, Jim, are, are they trying to stoke the chaos? It, it seems kind of perfectly designed to set up a situation where we're going to get a lot more culture war clashes on campus. Am I, am I, am I misreading this? Well, I mean, it's, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting you say that. If you look back at what happened in 1986, so similar political circumstances, similar political debates lead to the Education Act 1986 to create the original freedom of speech duty with a code of practice and, and so on and so on. And actually, one of the things that happened after the 86 Act was passed is a lot of people then attempted to put it to the test. So, you know, a bunch of people were very keen then to book very controversial speakers on campus to see if they would end up getting banned, to see if universities would uphold the duty and so on. So it's hard, you know, even if you play this with a straight bat and assume that the government's intentions are kind of neutral and, you know, riffing off the evidence that it sees, even if you do that, and, you know, I accept it's quite difficult to do, so I certainly find it difficult to do that, but if you do that, then ne whatever happens, you can almost guarantee that there will be a whole bunch of particular types of students society particular types of kind of potentially alt-right celebrity external speakers attempting to test this regime as soon as it has kind of you know worked its way through parliament and the regulator mm. yeah that, that was that was my thought as well i mean claire you you, you know you're mostly beyond the the scope of this uh this piece of legislation should it pass uh, in in wales but um do you do you recognize but you, you know you, you work across the uk do you do you recognize the chilling effect on campus as michelle donnellan called it and this this kind of the what how the government paints universities as as a place where free speech can't happen unless they come here with their you know right saving the day with their legislative tools no and and you know i, I think it's it's widely agreed that you know across across the sector that, that there isn't necessarily a systemic issue here. You know, I've heard people saying, you know, this is a bit of a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Um, and there's certainly something of an irony that we're potentially going to be um, tying up the idea of, you know, freedom up in sort of bureaucratic knots, which is, you know, deeply distressing, to be honest. You know, we're, we're, universities are already legally required to have a code of practice in place. It has to be regularly reviewed. Um, but there is something about, you know, this kind of interventionist approach again from, from the government, um, shining a light on something that, you know, is, is managed okay, in my view. I mean, I am very concerned about the suggestion that the OFS will be regulating student unions 
opinions on this. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about particularly student union capacity to comply. And um, yes, this, this, this could spark, as Jim's just said, a, a kind of, um, you know, a, a kind of testing of the bill, if you like, and, and, and perhaps some, some interesting activities, um, you know, cropping up on campus. But actually, you know, this could actually narrow the scope of activity uh, because student unions with, you know, particularly smaller students' unions just will not have the resources to deal with this. Chris, is, is, it, is it chilly down there in Greenwich as well? <laughs> oh, the, the effect is, uh, is causing an absolute freezing. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, uh, yeah, as, as Claire says, you know, it is the ultimate sledgehammer to crack a nut. Anyone within or even just, you know, anywhere near the edges of the sector knows that this is not an issue which is felt um, except where we have to talk about it, which it which feels like it's far more regularly than we um, ever want to. Thank you to uh, thanks to government interventions, and and this is now um, going to frankly just cause us all a huge amount more work and stress and you know potential um, uh, difficulties. And and as you said, Mark, you know potentially stoke up some quite um, you know difficult issues on campus, whether that's intentional or, or otherwise. And and there are so many contradictions in what this is intended to do and what the the government are claiming it's going to do um, versus the you know uh, other other uh, legislation that's already in place. I mean just how you apply this with the prevent duty um uh, is you know side by side the two things do simply not match up and uh, and as claire says well you know often that is channeled through students union events student union societies who have then got to wrap themselves in in kind of legal cotton wool before they can do anything and it's completely you know counterproductive really well i'm, I'm glad you mentioned the the contradictions michelle donald university's minister was on uh a radio for yesterday evening selling the bill and she got herself in quite a tangle. Here's a clip. Let me just take one last example. Actually, this one came up when I was at university. Historian David Irving, widely regarded as Holocaust denier. Would he be someone if a student group invited him to come and give a talk and other students protested or tried to block his way? Is he one that would merit the defence of your bill? What this bill is designed to do is ensure that we protect and we promote free speech that is lawful. So any free speech that is is lawful, lawful. isn't it? Holocaust denial in this country is lawful, isn't it? So what I'm saying, yes. So that's right. so, so Holocaust that, denial is okay. You would defend a Holocaust denier being invited to campus because that is part of the free speech argument. Obviously, it would depend on exactly what they were saying, whether they were straying into racism, whether they were straying into hate crimes. But a lot of these things that we would be standing for, for would be hugely offensive, would be hugely hurtful, hmm. and and you including and I Holocaust denial. You've admitted it. Holocaust denial is not illegal. It's just wrong and offensive. It's not illegal. And you would defend the free speech right if a student body chose to invite David Irving, he would have the right to come and would have recourse to compensation in the event that others managed to block his presence. Well, I think you're conflating two things. There is difference between condoning and supporting something as opposed to standing up for free speech. Jim, help us out with what she's trying to say. you know, is there a danger we're going to conflate, um, you know, the, what, what she's talking about? Oh, look, the, look, look, the classic anti-no platform libertarian position is if if it's legal, then it should be allowed, even if it's uncomfortable and people should be able to, you know, debate it. And, you know, we've, you know a lot of that has kind of surrounded that, you know, the debate played out on the on the pages of spiked and so on front page of the telegraph and so on you know that this culture of safety is and people should go and debate things and so on the problem is that where things start to get very very difficult is where you have 
legal but harmful speech. So, for example, the point about the clash with the prevent duty is there's there's a lot of, you know, speakers, potentially activities that could happen on campus that are not prescribed. The groups are not proscribed, but so, you know, are, are technically legal, but, you know, separately in a wider duty, people would regard as harmful because of the potential that they, you know, they draw people into extremism or, or terrorism. Now, similarly, it is entirely possible that some speech could be debatable, but regarded as harassment or, you know, hateful or not promoting good relations on campus and so on. And the reality is that what we therefore currently do is we ask a whole bunch of people like universities and public authorities and charities to balance all of these duties. Now, Policy Exchange, the government have been pretty explicit on this. They think that's a backdoor to censorship. They think that's a backdoor to, you know, shutting down debate on campus. So Michelle is in, in a way reflecting honestly where the debate has got to. But the problem is the interrelationship with these other duties and crucially on that clip the interrelationship with her government's agenda which is telling universities in England to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-semitism because it, it can't be sensible or practical or compatible to be turning around to universities and saying you should regard you know holocaust denial as being anti-semitic and therefore you know you should discipline students while simultaneously saying well, that's a legitimate debate to have on campus. David Irving should be able to claim back his train fare if a student group cancels him. So they've got themselves into a mess over what I would call legal but harmful. And what's absolutely fascinating to me, and we put this in the blog, is on the same day that that bill is published, the DCMS, Culture, Media and Sport, are publishing details of their online safety bill, formerly the online harms bill, which explicitly will turn around to Twitter and Facebook and say, we want you to take action over speech on your platforms that is legal but harmful. So you've got Twitter being told it has to clamp down on legal but harmful. And you've got Michelle Donnellan on PM saying you've got to allow legal but harmful. And, you know, the reality is that... The, the character, the simplistic characterization of students wandering around trying to silence each other is what it is. But when you get into some of these spaces where you're trying to promote good relations on campus and create a genuinely safe environment so that people can be challenged, this is where things get genuinely difficult. And I suspect is where the government will have a really rough time, both in both in the Commons, but crucially in the Lords. The, the real contradiction here, as well, it, it highlighted in that example, um, Jim, with the the kind of social media platforms is. That they've got it the wrong way around. There is a real difference between freedom of speech and freedom of platform. You know, somebody can stand on a street corner and shout out whatever they want, and actually, it's it's hurtful. But you can walk away. You're not legitimizing that view. You're not pre presenting it as debate. It's 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 literally speech. And actually, somebody tweeting is the digital equivalent of speaking. So in theory, if you're saying, well, actually, you know, things can be said that are harmful, but if they're not illegal, then actually we're not going to stop it. Then it's the speech bit that you should be allowing. It's the platform where you then legitimize something, and and in, in, inevitably in any university. As soon as you give somebody speech in a university, as in you give them access to premises, you give them uh, an event that you promote, you, you put them up next to someone else to debate, it is a platform. You can't really just say, well, we'll let people walk around and say what they want until it hurts someone. And if it breaks the law, then we'll stop it. It's platform. It's, it's, free it's freedom of platform and it legitimizes those views. So it's completely the wrong way around. And it's, you know, it's like the, B the BBC with their kind of, you know, mission of impartiality. You know, they wouldn't dream and the government wouldn't dream of letting them bring a Holocaust denier on every time they talk about the Holocaust, <laughs> you know, 
because oh, actually we've just got to hear the other view because they would recognise that that is going to cause you know un- possibly untold levels of harm and hurt for literally no reason whatsoever, even though it technically is is legal. And yet they're trying to apply these principles in a completely flipped around a way to higher education. Yeah, precisely. I mean, Claire, how would you weigh up a decision like that when it comes to, let's <laughs> say, someone, the Student Society invited a Holocaust denier onto, onto campus to speak? I mean, there are so many things at play here. And, and you know, the, this... This this idea of you know legal but harmful speech you know is we are just going to tie ourselves in knots and I think you know these things have to be sorted out through you know sensible dialogue discussion you know understanding points of view getting people around the table um, I, I just go back to my fear for for students unions that they're going to be you know the, the it's just not going to be practical for them to to engage with you know detailed legal advice um you know get get things in place where they're kind of squeaky clean over things if things might be you know even slightly controversial um i think i read somewhere that uh, potentially nearly 5 million pounds worth of incurred costs this, this is going to create from providers and students unions in terms of compliance that can't be a good way to go uh, when we're trying to you know provide open forums for students to discuss freely uh, to show respect for each other uh, not to go down a kind of you know legal route of what's right and wrong yeah and, and after the year they've had I, I can't imagine many SUs I mean if the government comes knocking for these fines you know I'm mm. looking at some SU SU bank accounts at the moment they're not going to <laughs> they might they might be a bit disappointed um, and on that point about subscriptions I mean you know this this is this has been long rumbling in the sector uh rfs keeps uh keeps kind of keeps growing what it does and and, and universities have to pay um i i wonder if we do a bit you know another another real pushback from the sector as there as there was a coordinated push with the the last round of legislation with the sector's allies in the lords you know is there is there an opportunity here for you know for a bit of actual fight back i mean jim you were pointing out on twitter that there was just a lot of kind of well you know it's not really a problem nothing to see here you know is there a, is this a moment that the sector should be really galvanising its support across civil society, the lords, and and the rest, and and really trying to unpick this and make sense of it, or are we just going to see you know a sort of hodge hodgepodge of uh, of the legislation kind of get get its way through and uh, everyone sort of you know make lemonade out of it? Well, I mean, it's a really good question, and uh, I, I, look. One of the things that I think is really interesting about it is that officially this is about free speech. But if you look at, you know, the annexes that are in the DfE policy paper in February, that freedom of speech and freedom of expression agenda includes, for example, a suggestion that curriculum decolonisation shouldn't be allowed because it's partisan and that bystander training shouldn't be allowed because, you know, it's a woke student Stasi that is spying on other students. If that stuff manifests itself eventually in the guidance that comes out from OFS on compliance, which presumably would come out of a slightly differently governed OFS because, you know, it has a highly politicised chair and a highly politicised director of academic freedom and freedom of speech. Then, you know, what the sector will have allowed to do if it doesn't kick back now is get to a point where it's being regulated on the basis of killing off large chunks of its race equality plan. So, you know, those are some of the circumstances where this could get very, very difficult. And and what I'm getting at is, 
if this was just about free speech and, you know, not clamping down on people and promoting free speech and having democracy days, like it says in the impact assessment and so on, that would be fine. The problem is that it appears to be shot through with a bunch of other front page of the Telegraph agendas. And if, and I accept it's a big if, right, but if those end up manifesting themselves in actual regulation... God alone knows what happens then if people haven't intervened beforehand. Now, I suspect that, you know, a lot of these debates can end up, you know, being held on the floor of the House and in the scrutiny committees and, you know, in the Lords and so on. But nevertheless, the sector, I think, needs to ask itself, does it does it want to end up there? And and, and would it be right or silly just to keep saying, as, as the sector generally has been saying, look, we're already good at free speech? Because if it's not really about free speech or, or if, you know, if the government and the sector are talking at cross purpose, about their definition of free speech, we're in trouble. I, th- I think I, I'd agree with that, Jim. And, you know, this is potentially the start of something that, that could gain momentum p- politically and, and run away from sector control. And I think, yeah, this is potentially an opportunity for universities to actually work really proactively and constructively um, with, with the NUS, um, perhaps on a, you know, a joint stand here in order to cr- try and kind of you know, reset the agenda um, so it doesn't become something that, you know, we don't want to see further down the line. Right. Let's- Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, my name is Ruth Taylor. I'm Vice Principal for Education at the University of Aberdeen. I wrote this piece in collaboration with Lee Watson from our Students' Union. The blog is about how the effective aspects of the student experience are often invisible, particularly in the context of the current pandemic when we don't see students in the same way as we did when we had more in-person contact with many of them. We argue that the invisibility of those effective aspects, such as loneliness and stress, are impacting on student engagement and success, and how we can support students, particularly in these different times. We ask, how do we create an environment where students feel able to make the invisible visible? We aren't suggesting, actually, that we should see into every corner of people's lives, nor that we should pathologise non-engagement just that we should keep trying to create those supportive environments in this evolving higher education context, perhaps even considering whether we should systematically ask students, how do you feel? So there was a lot of other bits and bobs in the Queen's speech this week. Chris, talk us through some of the highlights. Yeah, well, the most significant uh, other bit of the Queen's speech related to the uh, skills and post-16 agenda, which has obvious impacts on higher education for, uh, you know, collaborative delivery with FE and, and franchise courses and, and uh, the collaboration with employers and providers uh, meeting local needs and things like that. The, the three-word headline, because there's always a three-word headline, isn't there, that, that, uh, that grabbed that attention was the Lifetime Skills Guarantee, uh, which is essentially a, an ability to claim a four-year student loan at any point in a lifetime. Um, don't get too excited. That uh, is sounds easy, but uh, we'll take years to implement so it'll be a few years away before before we see that um it does reference uh, the ofs being given more new powers uh, to address low quality higher education provision although it's not quite clear how that will be uh, possible um uh, and a lot of the the this sort of skills work re- relates to uh, the leveling up agenda um which we've heard quite a bit about this week um and a couple of universities aston and southbank have, have made a pitch essentially to uh, to now become universities of, of technology and recognizing it in a sort of different way in, in the sector and then there's a whole load of other stuff in uh, other little bits of the Queen's speech uh, around uh, charities and boycotts, uh, rental law, building safety, voter ID, uh, professional qualifications, and, and all of these things that could really impact students' unions and universities in a whole range of different ways for, for the future. And it all basically points to um, an interesting year ahead. Indeed. Um, 
this issue about voter ID is being has been getting a lot of headlines, doesn't it, Chris? Because um, well, for for a bunch of reasons, but it's been a long running problem for students on campus and different residences, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's already a drive to uh, well, a constant drive really to to obviously get students registered to vote. Uh, we now have um, a, a, an expectation upon us to to put something in place to to enable that. Um, and uh, and to be honest, having having brought a system in that makes it really very easy for students to click when they register as a student to to vote as well, um, it's proved to be extremely difficult to actually get students to do so. Um, so it'll be even more difficult if you're then asking uh, students having registered to vote that they also need to make sure that they have um, an appropriate form of ID which comes at a cost. Um, it's uh, a running theme of sledgehammers to crack nuts, isn't it? It was a, a six uh, examples of voter fraud in the last general election and yet they think that um, you know, potential use of voter ID would impact on between two to three million people in terms of um, the ability to be able to afford a passport or a driving licence to be able to prove uh, prove so uh, you know, your ID. So, um, yeah, already a, a difficult area for us to try and encourage students to register, um, especially when there's the, the, the confusion from students about whether they register at home or at their term time address. And, um, yeah, one more level of uh, uh, barrier put in the way will, will not be encouraging young people to vote, but then maybe that's the idea. Jim, the, the, the online uh, harms bill is, is clearly going to, to, to be a big feature of public debate over the coming months. And there's lots of interesting implications here for uh, for universities, isn't there, in terms of how uh, the kind of the, the limits of what kind of academic debate and how and, and where that meets the the Twitter storms? Um, I mean, what's what should we be what should universities be thinking about now in, in relation to that? Yeah, well, look, I, I mean, you know, without replaying the conversation we had about um, you know freedom of speech, you know, part of the debate around online safety and online harms is the way in which the framing document from DCMS <clears throat> creates, you know, the age-old moral question of the line between freedom from harm and freedom to speak and, you know, placing that expectation on the big social media firms and Ofcom to go and, you know, kind of sort that out. Um, where, where I think this gets p- potentially really interesting for, um, you know, universities and to some extent for student unions and student groups is, you know, the reality is that cancel culture, you know, this idea of the woke mob jumping on someone and trying to have them sacked or banned. That doesn't really happen in meetings or in meeting rooms or at student union council meetings. It happens online. And, and you know, online, quite often those kind of pylons might involve some students, might involve some accounts that look like students but are actually troll farms, might involve some students from other institutes, might involve some school people, involve the general public. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the reality is, I think, that a lot of the assumption around can- cancel culture is very kind of analogue in a digital age. It's very, bring me the ringleader and I will do something to the ringleader. And what strikes me at a kind of macro level about the kind of, you know, either the democrat, the, the amazing democratisation that the web offers or the, you know, the tyranny of the mob that the, off- that the, that the web offers is that we're talking about decentralised activity from large groups of people who can talk to each other without having to go through the medium of, you know, the comment page on the in, in a newspaper or a formal meeting or whatever and trying to control that and regulate that is fiendishly 
difficult and i suspect that we will end up with you know a, a very similar but ironically very different debate then over the kind of online safety bill than the sort of debate we'll have over freedom of speech in universities and of course ideally what you would want is parliamentarians and others to sit down and look at them in conjunction you'd want the same kind of bill scrutiny committee you'd want the same sort of people looking at this because of the crossovers of the issues but sadly i suspect we won't get that i mean i mean the lines around um the uh, ofs powers to take action to address um in quotes, low quality HE provision, I guess, is something we perhaps, perhaps just used, should hover over for a moment. I mean, you know, this is all part of the, um, obviously the quality and standards review that OFS are doing as well. Um, but, you know, we, we know there is no way to reliably identify such provision. You know, what does it actually mean? It's a contexted term. We know that proxy measures related to um, graduate salaries, for example, are, are deeply unsatisfactory for all sorts of reasons. And, you know, measures related to entry requirements uh, are quite frankly very difficult for for universities to get alongside. You know. That's what they're talking about there, I think, isn't it? Yeah. That's exactly. They're, yeah. they're, looking at, they're looking at the supply side. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's a big part of it. And, you know, for, for a university like mine, you know, Wiley Access University, students with quite complicated Wiley Access characteristics, you know, ir- irregular <laughs> qualifications and life experience, um, you know, th- this is just another example of... of you know, perhaps not trusting universities to make you know the right decisions around um, you know student entry, admissions, uh, all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it's a shame really because there, there is uh, what looks like probably lots of really good things in the in the skills bill that has been widely welcomed by the by the further education and, and broader skills sector, and that they all you know they have to tack on this kind of attack on universities and students to some extent at the, at the same time. It's 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 unfortunate. It is. And I think, you know, the, the, the things in the bill around FEHE collaboration, you know, well, certainly scope for FEHE collaboration, um, you know, the introduction of the local skills improvement plans in England, um, you know, huge scope for progression, uh, for collaboration around progression pathways, which has got to be good for learners. You know, at the end of the day, that's what we want to, to be in the business of making sure that there are good progression pathways for, for learners wherever they are. And I guess, you know, the work that Aston and LSBU have done around their kind of pitch, uh, to be University of Technology, you know, they're kind of saying, look, we're doing a lot of this work already. They're endorsing that more collaborative approach. Uh, and, and again, you know, I would recognise that from my own university in, in, in North East Wales, you know, applied research, um, links into industry uh, and growing collaborations with FE. A couple of other tidbits then from the Queen's Speech, Jim, uh, building safety and uh, rent reform. Talk us through those quickly. Yeah, I mean, there's not much in rent reform for, for, for the sector, really, although the building, the building safety stuff is quite interesting. So um, in the documents that came out from from um, communities and local government or whatever that department's called this, this, these days. Um, it suggested that tenants, uh, including, you know, licensees in kind of halls of residence, so, you know, all the, all the different types of tenants, not just, you know, strict tenancies, would get um, some interesting new rights to be consulted, uh, particularly over building safety, obviously, and also would have, you know, the right to access lots of building safety material and documents and so on. And, and what it does is kind of via, via a building safety side door is enshrine and guarantee um, uh, types of kind of tenant participation, which are actually quite straightforward if you're uh, an HMO landlord that is talking to, you know, four students in your HMO, because you just pop round and meet them when they're having their dinner, right? But in a hall of residence, in a, in a kind of large institutional type setting, it starts to get genuinely interesting in terms of what that, you know, the bringing together of that kind of group would entail, the creation of potentially representative systems that aren't necessarily, I've just got the Students' Union Welfare Officer on a 
committee. Do you know what I mean? So that potentially is really interesting when it hits, and you know, that'll be worth keeping an eye on. The end of the binary line, the, the d- divide between the uh, the autonomous sector of universities and the public sector of uh, higher education institutions, comes in two chunks. Um, one at the end of the 80s and one at the beginning of the 90s. The first part is that um, Margaret Thatcher is persuaded that the polytechnics should be incorporated, i.e. they should be taken out of local authority control. So one of the complaints all the way from the start of the process from polytechnic directors is that they are trapped in a layer of bureaucracy uh, driven by the local authorities. Um, to start with, there are discussions about how, how much money a polytechnic could spend on its own. Is it £100 or is it £200 without having to go and get the local authorities control so they're seen as a department of local authority um, and that heritage continues so you know, you, the local government pension scheme that um, is uh, provided to uh, staff in uh, uh, post 92 institutions is, is part of that heritage but at the point you would find that you know, the paywall was run through them the committee structure was run through them they weren't allowed to own their own buildings everything had to be signed off by the, the local authority so mrs thatcher is convinced and she's convinced again because the polytechnics are business focused they're keen to expand they're keen to do what the government wants to do but they also had the extra argument about the loony left because if there was something that we all know about the the, the way that uh, the conservative government in the 80s was having to deal with things they were so um, against the, the loony left running um, large uh, conurbations and therefore the all the polytechnic directors had to say is we could be so much better if we weren't enthralled to all these people and their their anti-nuclear um, campaigning and their all of these kind of things just free us from this and we will do all of these kind of things whether they believe this or not it was a really good uh, reason to get Margaret Thatcher behind them so that's fine and they were incorporated they were allowed to to run free there's all sorts of weird things that happen a part of that because obviously um some of the polytechnics get dealt quite a good hand um they get to have the um, the countryside training center that used to belong to the um local authority or they get dealt uh, the hand of you know the local authority giving them all the really crappy stuff um that's going to need you know huge amounts of maintenance and, and upgrade but but th- those kind of things come to a stop and the the polytechnics get to be incorporated and the colleges as well alongside them there's a there's a discussion about how big you have to be and how much money uh, and there's a kind of line drawn through the the sector as to who gets to be incorporated and then have its own funding body so they get looked after by the polytechnics and colleges funding council um, and that continues off for a couple of years but then the next chunk comes after mrs thatcher's left and john majors come in uh, and the discussion point comes about the next natural stage which is should we have one sector of higher education working together I think that's probably coloured by the UFC finding it quite hard to make universities do what they're supposed to do, which was to expand cheaply. The polytechnics are quite keen to do that, and the idea of bringing the whole sector together uh, is clearly quite good. There are big concerns in government about academic drift, that sense that polytechnics are going to stop doing what they're good at, and there are documents which read just like the concerns that you'll read in in The Telegraph today about polytechnics running two academic courses doing research that they shouldn't be doing uh, and generally drifting from their original mission so there's a concern that they can do that uh, john major is assured by ken clark that though that firm will have lots of mechanisms in place uh, to do that um, but off they go and they take the decision that we will have one sector and we'll merge them all together so polytechnics get the opportunity to become universities we get hefke which then starts its uh, 25 year run um, and then we get one sector glued together um, obviously there's a lots of discussions when that first comes together there's a great file uh, again about discussing how the funding model will work and how people will migrate to a single uh, cost um, but the, the sector sets off in, in a relatively straightforward way but 
get that, that initial thing of will there be parity of steam between vocational and academic forms of education uh, that's a concern that michael howard expresses uh, in the paperwork um is a is a key tension that i think we're still dealing with today and one that probably the conservative party still fights about so off off we go um this new move towards the class of society the idea that academic and vocational education would work together and obviously what we've seen is is that development now there's an argument and i think um simon jenkins jenkins that makes it is that the polytechnics win effectively it's the polytechnic model much more than the the autonomous model of the universities that win out from that uh, but that's the that's the sector we get bequeathed in 1992 wonkfest our festival of higher education returns in june and because of the year we've all just had we're using it as an opportunity to look ahead what worked what didn't and how can we come back stronger as universities, professionals, and as a sector? And crucially, how can higher education drive the global recovery? It's all about how we build back higher. We'll hear from people who've been at the heart of the government response, like National Statistician Ian Diamond, Vice-Chancellors, Students Union Officers, and literally, and I mean literally, everything and everyone in between. It's online only this year, well, because you know why. But we're working hard to keep the best of the Wonkfest you know, bustling with insights you can take back to your institutions at the end, and Team Wonky will be on hand every step of the way to help guide you through it. It's all happening on 9th and 10th of June. The programme is out now and you can find out more and book your tickets at wonkfest.co.uk. And as usual, group discounts and plus and partner rates apply. We look forward to seeing you in June to help us build back higher together. So at time of recording, the UK government's consultation on admissions reform is about to close. Uh, Claire, talk us through the latest debate about this. Yeah, so the uh, DfE consultation on post-qualification admissions, yeah, the debate's getting a bit of a head of steam, I think, in the light of today's deadline uh, for consultation responses. Um, And, you know, there's widespread agreement that any move to uh, PQA should be done very cautiously. Um, The devil is always in the detail. Um, And indeed, you know, I think it's clear there's a real danger of creating yet further inequalities if, if we're not careful and missing the kind of levelling up agenda um, in, in terms of equal admissions that this is supposed to address. We are seeing a kind of PQA um, continuum uh, emerging, I think, from the kind of sort of hard edge post-qualification applications through to post-qualification offers. Uh, and that latter, the, the kind of PQO we're now calling it, um, UCAS has come out sort of softly in favour of that, as we know. Um, others are recommending, you know, a replacement of UCAS, um, going down the road of allocating admissions places based on algorithms. But there are also legal implications, and, and that's now starting to kind of be looked at in relation to, you know, the truncated decision window for applicants and all sorts of practical issues related to the provision of um, information, advice and guidance, especially, again, for our non-traditional widening access students. So lots of things coming out of the woodwork there. um, And um, the debate is, I don't think the debate's over yet, to be honest. Mm. Uh, We we published some analysis this this morning uh, with a friend of the show, Smita Jamdar, um, about about the kind of consumer protection implications uh, of P- of PQA, which hasn't hasn't previously really been bottomed out. Jim, what was the what was your takeaway from that? Oh, really interesting, and of course relates to you know all these other consumer protection issues that have been floating around. But you know, you know the the you know the the point is it, it, it the macro point I think that that's made to dances around is. The reality about PQO, which is in theory where the default option is right now, is it shoves everybody into this highly chaotic, 
you know, kind of scramble for clearing. And, and I guess what I'd say is consumer protection law generally assumes that you are sat at home with that month's edition of Witch magazine and you are flicking through comparing the qualities of the washing machine that you really want to buy right uh, you know and you're researching it and you know you've got a spreadsheet open and so on the reality though is that on black friday what happens is you and 50 other people are kind of you know sharpening your elbows to smash the asda's window at 10 o'clock in the morning to run in and get the telly that you want and it's 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 probable that you're not just outside asda on that day carefully looking through which magazine that month because you're you know you're in this kind of panic and scramble and and the reality is that what pqo does is it shoves everybody into that clearing scramble and i remember i just remain of the view that whatever the benefits are you know in terms of kind of you know predicted grades and statistics you know people feeling they can apply for something they didn't realize they were going to be able to apply for once they get their results that the, 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 the bad news is shoving everyone into clearing and hoping for the best because because i have a horrible feeling that's going to go very badly wrong mm. i mean and but that, that leads us to the kind of the challenge for this year, which is so much more about transitions. Because I mean, it, it would take several years to change the, uh, the, the admission system in a substantial way. I mean, Chris, um, a lot of effort is going in, isn't it, to, to think about transition for September. I mean, wh- how are you thinking about it? Yeah, well, it's, it's obviously something that's, that we're very concerned about in terms of, uh, to be honest, not just, you know, the, the transition for uh, this year's, uh, you know, school leavers and college leavers into their first year, but frankly, for this year's first years back uh, into into normality, who, who didn't have that proper transition last year anyway, um, and now will potentially be, you know, back on the campus and thrust into, um, uh, you know, what would we would have called normal before before the pandemic. And that is going to have a, a, a you know, a really wide-ranging impact on uh, individual students across the spectrum really uh, we, you know, we're expecting a lot of students especially those coming um, directly in as for in, into first year um, you know post uh, a levels to, to be suffering almost a form of you know PTSD really in terms of the kind of you know traumatic journey they've had to end their school life their their own personal exploration of themselves and their personalities and all the things that go within that that's been completely stifled to then suddenly step onto a university campus which is you know big and scary and and very 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 different could really you know be, be quite traumatic so you know we're, we're we've already extended our welcome period um we're having a fortnight of of, of induction uh, and orientation activities a mixture of online and face-to-face we're, we're essentially trying to ease students in bring them on you know a lot of them haven't even seen the campus you know virtual open days means they've not even had the chance to to literally see what a university is like let alone see what it's like to sit in a uh, a lecture theater or a, a seminar room or experience everything else that goes alongside it so you know giving ourselves as much time as possible to do that uh you know producing as much as we can in terms of online material for for um uh for students to go over and uh, and employing a, a team of, of of staff and students to to try and call everyone everyone with an offer to to reassure them about the process to help them through the complexities of um uh, you know the student finance system of uh, you know reaching out to international students and explaining exactly how what you do when you get off the plane how you get a tube or or a taxi or whatever into into our campuses and uh, just to try and ease that transition as much as possible but um you know that is that is you know difficult at the best of times it's certainly um difficult when a lot of that work needs to happen at the same time as clearing and and the the chaos of clearing um is is ensued and that sort of you know it's four to eight week period that we've got of of, of complete madness and and you know many of us for very good reasons and, and i can't imagine there's much arguments against against it you know would would really want to strive for a much more contextual admissions process um and you know just looking back to the to the long term 
that the, the key thing that requires is time. If you haven't got the time, you're reliant on algorithms. Even even to try and be contextual, you're still looking at algorithms. You're not looking at people. Um, and uh, you know, so so any review of the admissions process, if it is if it's going to be truly fair and 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 you know, maybe this is a nut that's big enough to require a sledgehammer. Um, it, it has to it has to have that kind of end goal in mind, really. But but yes, certainly for now, the the transition for this year feels hugely you know more important even even than in a normal year. And, and I'd absolutely agree with that, Chris. And, and yeah, there are particular issues for, for school leavers who've had a, a very, very odd educational experience over the past 12, 18 months or so. But actually, you know, for students of all ages and backgrounds, you know, they've kind of missed out on, you know, this kind of in-person social interaction, those social learning experiences. Uh, and, you know, it's not just those new into HE, but those transitioning into different year groups as well. And I think for us, um, you know, joining the dots up is absolutely key, you know, academic colleagues, student support, and again, our students' unions working with us in partnership. Um, you know, they've had a terrible year and um, we want to support them as well to be able to, you know, get the offer right for new students coming in and students who haven't perhaps interacted as much with them as they would have liked over the past year. Uh, so there's a lot of work for us to do together and, um, yeah, early kind of quality engagement is really, really key, as Chris has said. Mark, I guess the other thing I'd say quickly is the theory here behind PQO is about improving choice, right? Because the, the idea is that students will make better choices once they're certain of how much kind of, you know, um, grades currency they'll have in order to, you know, maximise their grades currency to make the best choice for them kind of, you know, in terms of choice of institution. But But if we want to talk about choice one we have to accept that if you leave it that late in order to achieve that objective you knock out a load of other ability to kind of make a decent choice in terms of researching and and so on but most importantly you know the real issue that Smita raises in her blog about you know the cooling off period is there is this crunch where it doesn't matter how hard you try actually whether you're trying really hard over 18 months or whether you're giving people 10 days to do it or two days to do it quite a few students are going to make the wrong decision either they're going to go to university when they shouldn't or they're going to go to the wrong university and all of this stuff about how to improve the initial choice for me is dancing on the head of a pin in comparison to putting in place solutions that would allow students much more ability to switch or much more ability to pull out both of which are genuinely very difficult when you particularly when you mix in rental accommodation if they're studying away from home so i I think if pqa is introduced my argument would be that we need to see much more of an effort on making sure that if students make the wrong choice, we protect them rather than trap them. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. And don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Walkie Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website, walkie.com, to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks to Claire, Chris, Jim, Mike Ratcliffe and everyone at Team Walkie that makes it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay safe, stay wonky. Walkie.